Welcome back to another episode of Suiting Up Varsity, a podcast dedicated to the sound of the band, the smell of popcorn, the feel of an old letter jacket, the sight of teenagers hoisting trophies high above their heads, and most of all, to the grand history and fantastic stories of Nebraska prep sports. Join us as we look back in time at the great moments from a century plus of Nebraska high school athletics. This week we take a little break from our time with the uh, Boys Town National Football Program as we followed them in developing their program and building it. We still have a few more episodes to go, an amazing 1950s with the Boys Town, but we'll save those for a little later on. This week our time travels take us to the Lexington High School football field for a backyard brawl with the neighboring Gothenburg Swedes. It's October 4th. 1957, and down on the field, Minuteman Dallas Dyer is zooming around and over the visitors. In the first quarter, he breaks free for an 80-yard touchdown run and then intercepts a Gothenburg pass and returns it 32 yards for another score, adding both the extra point kicks himself. In the second half, he'll tack on a 22-yard catch from quarterback Steve Smith as the hometown team runs up a 34-0 win. All night, we'll be dazzled by the talent on display for the Minutemen. Besides Dyer, who will matriculate at Nebraska as a do-everything utility player, spending time at fullback, halfback, end, and guard, as well as signal-calling linebacker on defense, there is Monty Kiffin, who will also letter at NU and stay in football through a long coaching career in college and the NFL as the innovator of the Tampa 2 defense, winning a Super Bowl title as the Buccaneers' defensive coordinator. And Mick Tinglehoff, who will captain the Cornhuskers in 1961 and go on to a 17-year Hall of Fame career with the Minnesota Vikings. Joining those superstars down on the field are three other Lex players who will play college football. But our attention will be divided as we sit in the stands that night, watching Lex dismantle their Southwestern Conference rival. And not just by the strange uniform choice of the Minutemen. For reasons lost to history, they are dressed in olive green pants and jerseys, with their school colors of black and orange represented only on the numbers, striping, and helmets. We will, like football fans and other Americans all over the country, have our eyes drawn upward, scanning the sky for that shiny basketball-sized orb, which we are told is the Soviet Sputnik satellite, launched earlier today from the southern Kazakhstan region of the USSR. The space race has begun, and fears of the loss of American strategic supremacy are everywhere, from those wooden bleachers in the Central Valley of Nebraska to the corridors of power in Washington, D.C., where Senate Majority Leader and future President Lyndon Johnson will give them voice, as recreated here in the movie classic, The Right Stuff. Whoever controls the high ground of space will control the world. The Roman Empire controlled the world because it could build roads. Later, the British Empire was dominant because it had ships. In air stage, we were powerful because we had the airplane. Now, the communists have established a foothold in outer space. Pretty soon, they have damn space platforms up there to drop nuclear bombs on us, like rocks from a highway overpass. Now, how in the hell did they ever get ahead of us? This night in 1957, the whole country is asking that question. But in Nebraska prep sports circles, we are asking another. 
where does this Lexington powerhouse, representing the smallest Class A school in 1957, fit into the strategic power structure of the state football championship race? The 34-0 win over Gothenburg that we observe under the light of that circling Soviet moon is the fourth straight shutout for Lexington. That includes a season-opening win over Broken Bow and two Class A wins. The Minutemen beat a weak McCook team 25-0 and sent Omaha Westside and its 400 fans home on their chartered train as 33-0 losers. The Westside win has potential to help Lex in the ratings game, though the Warriors are a year away from being allowed into the Omaha big school fraternity of the Inner City League. They are uh, still playing in the smaller school Exarban Conference in 1957, only their seventh fall since opening in 1951. But if they can put up some quality wins, it will help the Lexington case. By the way, while we're talking about Westside, I couldn't confirm or disprove that the infamous Hollywood actor Nick Nolte made that train trip with the Warriors that night. I do know he was in school at Omaha Westside and on the football team in this era. He also spent some time at Omaha Benson, where he was allegedly kicked off the football team for bringing beer to practice. But enough about Tinseltown bad boys. The same night that we watched Lex and Gothenburg, the Lincoln Class A teams were playing their way out of the state championship picture. At Wesleyan Stadium, the Northeast Rockets fumbled the ball on their own 36 in the fourth quarter, and Beatrice turned it into the second Ben Stint touchdown of the night and a 12-7 win. Stint had a 59-yard gallop earlier on an evening in which the Orangemen outrushed Northeast 300-58. The Beatrice starting quarterback was a freshman that night, Bob Hahn, who will eventually start at Nebraska and play in the NFL with the Steelers. Across town at the Lincoln High Oval, the Lynx looked like they were going to get their season jump-started with a 19-0 lead on unbeaten Grand Island thanks to three Islander first-half fumbles. High had stumbled out of the gates in 1957 under first-year coach Ed Schwarzkopf, losing big to Omaha Central in Sioux Falls, Washington. The Lynx's lone win was over a struggling North Platte team. But if they could take a homecoming night victory over the top 10 ranked Islanders, their revered program status and top flight schedule could put them right back in the state title conversation. Grand Island got its act together in the second half, though, and halfback Larry Van Way led the purple attack. He scored two TDs to make it 19-13, and then, after a link fumble was returned to tie it at 19 apiece, Van Way took a reverse in for the extra point and the win and Lincoln High was 1-3, and, and in a rare role for them on the outside looking into the state championship picture. To remind us just how respected the Lynx were in the middle of the last century, they remained ranked in the top 10 in both newspapers, despite that 1-3 and record. Going into the week, it had actually looked like the new kids in town, the Knights of third-year school Southeast, would be the Lincoln title contenders this year. Through week three, the Knights had matched Lexington with three shutouts, two over Big Ten foes, Hastings and Fremont, and another over the Class B Geneva Wildcats. That was over, though, when playing on Saturday at the Lincoln High Oval, Southeast fumbled five times and was stopped inches from the goal with less than two minutes to go as Norfolk captured a 6-2 win and knocked the Knights and their less impressive schedule from both top ten lists.
Later in the year, we see that the Lincoln Public Schools are starting to revoke Lincoln High's special status as the capital city's number one school. Greg McBride will report that the longtime Lincoln High-Scottsbluff rivalry will be discontinued after 18 years because of what he calls the new Lincoln School Board's all-for-one and all-for-each policy. It's the first sign that the three schools will start to be considered athletic equals and as a precursor of all LPS schools playing in the same conference, something that doesn't seem to have even been considered in the 1940s when Northeast first opened. By the way, I'm not sure the LPS board carried through with that threat completely because I know the Lynx and Bearcats played at least some games in the 1960s. Without a Lincoln contender in the statewide race, Omaha and the Big Ten stepped to the front as the primary obstacles to Lexington getting state title consideration. In the Big Ten, Grand Island in the east and Scotts Bluff in the west were unbeaten at the season's midpoint, and Columbus had only one loss to GI. A week after the Lex Gothenburg game, which we dropped in on to open the episode, the Bluffs drubbed Lincoln High 34-6 in that annual cross-state rivalry game, and the Islanders topped the same Norfolk Panthers who had bested Southeast, and it looked like the conference's title game was once again going to provide a strong contender for the state crown. In Omaha, it was not business as usual, and hadn't been since the season's beginning. For the last six years, the Omaha Intercity League had produced an unbeaten in-league champ, and that champ had been either Creighton Prep or Omaha North. The Junior Jays had won three straight conference titles in 53, 54, and 55, while the Vikings were champs in 51, 52, and 56. In 1957, Omaha South and Omaha Central changed that tune. In week one, South shocked the experts who thought the junior-dominated Packers were still a year away, beating Prep 19-13. Speedster Larry Milton made a strong opening statement, taking the season's first kickoff back 80 yards for a score. And future All-State and Prep All-American quarterback John Feyman threw for two more TDs in the win. The Packers followed that with victories over Central and Benson to control the top of the ratings in both papers and the league standings. Central, which had started the year with that blowout of Lincoln High, bounced back from the South loss by beating the other inner-city bully, Omaha North, 12-7, snapping the 56-state champs' win streak at 12. The speed of Willie McCants and Art Reynolds keyed the victory for the Eagles. Now, just three weeks into the season, the decade-dominating powers of the inner city have been knocked down a peg, and South, coached by future Cornhusker offensive line guru Cletus Fisher, is in the driver's seat, with Central right behind. South, Central, and Creighton Prep, which bounced back from that opening loss to win four straight, including a win over Sioux Falls, Washington, that same squad that had dominated Lincoln High, claimed the top three rungs in the newspaper ratings. Those Big Ten rivals on the championship game collision course, GI and Scotts Bluff, cruised along to round out the top five. This locked out the Minutemen, who continued to be doubted because of their schedule. Both papers keep Merle Appleby's, Coach Merle Appleby's troops in the second five with a rotating cast of characters, including those four loss now Lincoln High Links. The level of respect for that program and the schedule they played is really tough to compare to any modern team in any sport. 
After the win over Gothenburg, Lex kept their record and unscored-upon streak intact by routing Class A Kearney 33 to zip, and then faced two Southwest Conference Class B rivals that were battling for the top of the B ratings, Holdridge and Kozad. The Dusters held the top spot in the Class B ratings when they took their crack at Lexington and opened the game driving straight down the field just like they had against their first five victims. That drive was stopped at the Lex 20-yard line, though, and Holdridge was done threatening for the night. The Minutemen scored in every stanza and shut down record-setting Duster fullback Jim Huge on the way to a 41-0 shellacking. Kozad got its chance two weeks later, but had the same problem as every other Minuteman opponent. They couldn't score. Mylon Phelps and Dallas Dyer both crossed the goal line as Lex claimed a 13-0 victory, its seventh straight defensive goose egg. Lex had done everything they could with the schedule they had. They had just one more chance to impress against Class A, but underwhelming in 1957 North Platte in their season's finale. The best thing to happen to the Lexington title argument actually happened on the Minutemen's bye week in late October between those Holdridge and Kozad wins. Southwest Western Conference member Curtis, which had shrunk to Class C size by 57, canceled their game with their bigger rival Lex, and while the Minutemen took the weekend off, Big Ten contenders Grand Island and Scotts Bluff both stumbled. The Islanders entered their rivalry game at Hastings with a 6-0 record, but struggled all day on a snow-speckled field. Big Hastings back Don Purdue keyed a 91-yard drive in the third quarter, breaking a big third down run, and then taking a pitch from quarterback Jack Osborne, that's Tom's younger brother, and throwing a halfback pass for the go-ahead touchdown. Purdue also threw for the all-important extra point to put the Tigers up 14-7. GI responded in the fourth with a scoring drive of their own, but their extra point attempt was stuffed, and their undefeated season was over. Scott's Bluff had a rivalry game of their own that same Friday, traveling to North Platte, winners of only one game in their first six. The Platters had a brother angle working for them, though, just like Hastings. This time it was an older brother. Harlan Watchholtz, whose younger sibling Larry will lead the Bulldogs to the 1962 state title and later play in the NFL. The elder Watchholtz threw a 26-yard scoring strike to Jerry Johnson after a second-quarter Bearcat fumble to put the underdogs up 7-0. The Bluffs finally got on the scoreboard in the third when John Williamson exploded for a 55-yard scoring run. The Bearcat PAT kick, though, was blocked by North Platte in Chuck Wansley, and the Platter lead held at 7-6. Scott's Bluff made one final drive to the Bulldog 19 as time ran down. A last-second field goal attempt went wide, and the season's biggest upset belonged to the Blue and Gold. And Lexington had an opening in the state title sweepstakes heading into the home stretch. As always on Suiting Up Varsity, we want to encourage you the next time you're in Lincoln to visit the Nebraska High School Sports Hall of Fame located uh, just north of the uh, baseball and softball complexes, north of the Haymarket. Uh, the, the Hall of Fame is a great experience for young and old alike. Uh, as their motto says, preserving the past to inspiring the future. Um, they're back on their regular hours now, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 10 to 4. So the next time you're in Lincoln, you know, make a stop there and see their amazing exhibits, audiovisual displays. It's well worth the trip. In Class B, the state title race would go down to the final week as well, and also leave plenty to argue about. 
the haymakers of Kozad took over the top spot in the Lincoln ratings, entering the final weeks of the season on the basis of having held Lex closer than Holdridge had. But those two teams would meet in the season's last week to decide who was best on the field. Greg McBride and the World Herald, though, liked Crete better than either of the Western teams. The Cardinals were unbeaten in Class B, but had three Class A blemishes, losses to Nebraska City and Columbus, and a tie with Fairbury. Another Eastern school, Blair, was unbeaten in Nebraska, having lost only to Denison, Iowa. But their Exarban Conference schedule of future big schools, Bellevue, Ralston, and South Sioux City, was about two decades too early to earn them the state title praise they needed. Central Conference West rivals Aurora and Ord were also unbeaten and in the conversation as well. The Huskies and Chanticleers had a final week matchup scheduled just like Holdridge and Kozad. Crete had another Class A opportunity in its final game against the Falls City Tigers, while Blair, coached by future Grand Island headman Ken Fisher, had no such big game, wrapping up their slate with Ashland, whom they would blank 42-0 without improving their rating lot at all. Crete's case seemingly crumbled at home against Falls City. Bob Gibson scored a TD and Burley Brown ran for two as the Class A Tigers won 20-7 and finished the year unbeaten in Nebraska. Uh, Like Blair, they had lost out of state to Atchison, Kansas. Falls City also claimed the Twin Rivers Conference Championship with the win. Ord won the Central Conference West Division and staked its claim for the state title when Chanticleer Gerald Dunlap hit Larry Champ with a 50-yard fourth-quarter scoring strike to break a 6-6 tie with Aurora. All-State Husky Jack Conger scored the first touchdown of the game, but otherwise was held in check in front of 2,400 fans in Ord. The question mark with Ord was a week one tie with Broken Bow and its shortened schedule. They lost games to both weather and the flu during the season and finished only 6-0-1. That left Kozad's trip to Holdridge to sort Class B out. It was a back-and-forth contest early. The Dusters scored on a Spencer Pulls run, but Kozad struck back with a 42-yard Charles Bacon to Dean Miller TD pass. The Haymakers moved in front when Larry Beal recovered a Holdridge fumble and Ron Ritterbush scampered 38 yards for a touchdown on the next play. The game changed on the next Holdridge drive, though. Two things happened. The Dusters methodically moved in for the tying touchdown, and Kozad's quarterback, Bacon, broke his arm playing on defense. The Haymakers never really threatened again, as Holdridge star back Jim Huge took over and led the Dusters to a 26-13 win and a strong claim on the state title. Al Beebe of the Lincoln Journal agreed with me and named Holdridge the Class B champions. He didn't totally discount the Class A flavor of 5-3-1 Crete's schedule, naming them number two, with Kozad and Minden right behind. He had Orr just one slot above Aurora at 5-6 and six, and showed his faith in the Southwest Conference by placing 3-5 and five Gothenburg sixth. Unbeaten Blair was his number eight. Greg McBride, as he often did, had a different opinion on things. In his eyes, Crete, his Class B champion in 55 and 56, was still unbeaten in B. So Coach Ray Westover and the Cardinals, led by All-State running back Marvin Drevo, stayed on top despite their four Class A stumbles. He put Holdridge and Kozad at number two and number three and agreed with Minden at number four. I'm not sure I agree, but I'm sure I don't believe in his next two spots. He leaves Aurora, which had just lost in week six to Class A Nebraska City. 
um, ahead of the Ord team that had just beaten them because of that shortened Chanticleer schedule. He has Skyler at number seven, which adds to his Creed argument because the cards needed a last-second Ken Parker to Bob Vernon pass to beat the Warriors during the middle of the year. He has Ken Fisher and Blair at that same number eight spot. In Class C, the two papers also went different ways. The Lincoln Raider chose unbeaten Seward Concordia, whose biggest win was over David City St. Mary's before they became Aquinas, which was 5-2-1, and one, and their other loss had been to Class B Seward. Uh, and the tie to Class B and growing Lincoln Pius X. 1957 was the beginning of a golden age for Seward Concordia, which served as a teacher training ground for Concordia College from the late 1800s until it closed in 1972. Besides that 57 football crown, the Raiders won Class B baseball in 59 and 60 and Class C basketball in 1960. The Lincoln Journal rated 8-1 Oshkosh number 2 and the 9-0 Deshler Dragons and 7-0-1 Alma Cardinals and the 8-1 Cambridge Trojans in the top five. McBride reversed the top two. He chose the Oshkosh Eagles of Western Garden County, who had dropped only a close early game to 7-1-1 Class B Bridgeport, whose only loss was to Class A Gearing. Oshkosh also finished the season with convincing two-score wins over that same Class A Gehring team and the two-time defending state champions of Grant. McBride slipped the 8-1 Laurel Bears into his top five ahead of Cambridge. Their only loss was to the unbeaten Class B Northeastern Conference champion Pierce Blue Jays. Besides David City St. Mary's, the other teams rated in one paper or the other were 6-1 Loop City, 6-0 Syracuse, 6-2 Louisville, and the 8-1 Adkinson Haybalers. A couple schools with impressive win streaks against primarily small school schedules got notice, but no ratings. The Arcadia Huskies with 30 straight wins and Blue Hill with 16 victories in a row. Class D was not really a football class as we know it in 1957. Only six schools in the entire state who were in the basketball Class D ranks, meaning they had 35 or fewer boys, were playing 11-man football. McBride still picked a champion, choosing Elwood. Few of the D teams played each other, so they played Class C teams and presumably played a couple eight-man games. The Pirates finished just 4-4 four and four in the state championship season, but somewhere in their trophy case, they have a World Herald plaque proclaiming in them the 1957 Class D state champions. The Lincoln Papers didn't bother with Class D ratings. Strangely, McBride even selected an all-state team from those six schools of Class D. Elwood got four spots out of the 11, led by backs Richard Debin and Don Gruber. Sixth place Comstock got a player on the team despite going 1-7 and seven and finishing last in the class. McBride listed all six in his ratings. I assume that Comstock Pirate, All-Stater Dennis Douse, was fabulous in the season finale 26-7 win over Callaway, their only win of the year. And yes, that nickname means that two of the six Class D teams in the state were called the Pirates. The newspapers were unanimous in the eight-man ranks, agreeing on Exeter, winners of 27 games in a row. It was the Eagles' second straight World Herald McBride Championship and their third straight from the Lincoln Papers. Their 41-7 win over Norfolk Sacred Heart was the most impressive of their 8-0 season. The papers were also in agreement about the next two spots, with Red Willow from out near McCook and O'Neill St. Mary's fitting in there. 
Red Willow came close to dislodging Exeter by going 10-0 and finishing with a big bowl win. Yes, Nebraska schools were still playing special postseason games in 1957, though the process was falling out of favor and would soon be prohibited by rule. The Zephyrs destroyed the Dakota City Wildcats in the Big Brothers Bowl in Hastings. St. Mary's claim to fame in its 9-0 season was a 14-13 win over Crofton that snapped the Warriors' long winning streak. The big schools were long past playing postseason games in 1957, but maybe they should have reconsidered. We'd know a lot more about how the top teams should fit together if we had had a Lexington versus Scotts Bluff matchup in, North, in the North Platte Buffalo Bill Bowl, or maybe a Lex versus Omaha South in Memorial Stadium for an Honest Abe Bowl, or how about Falls City versus the Minutemen in the Nebraska City Apple Bowl. The newspaper men were unanimous in their six-man rankings, crowning the purple and gold Plymouth Pilgrims as state champions. The smartly named Pilgrims are now part of the Tri-County School District headquartered in DeWitt, but in 1957 they were the kings of six-man football. Their biggest game had been a late October 26-6 win over Diller behind Dennis Hetcher's four touchdowns. Diller's Eagles had been on a state-leading 37-game win streak before that game. Let's pause for a second to marvel at some nickname magic. First, Plymouth Pilgrims? Perfect. We are poorer without their scores in the newspapers every week. Second, the Diller Eagles are, of course, now consolidated with the Odell Tigers. That happened in 2000. Diller was orange and black, and Odell was black and orange, so the colors were a no-brainer. For the nickname, they acknowledged that tigers and lions are some kind of zoological cousins and chose griffins, the mythological beast, uh, which is half eagle and half lion. Perfect. The only non-football competition in the fall of 1957 was in cross country, and even that didn't have an NSAA-sponsored state championship yet. Instead, as often was the case, as different sports developed, the University of Nebraska's coaching staff hosted a state meet. In 57, Omaha North nipped Valentine by one point at Pioneers Park in Lincoln in mid-October for that state title. David Pokraka of Ord was the individual state champion, finishing just ahead of North's Tom Ash in the one-class meet. The Vikings team championship seems to have been a family affair. Top finisher Tom Ash was joined on their roster by Doug Ash and Russell Ash and Russell Taylor. Maybe he was a cousin. Carney, Hastings, and Ord rounded out the top five. Another thing I'd like to do this year on Suiting Up Varsity is point out some other resources about Nebraska high school sports history. And this week I ran across an interesting one, another book, A View from the Bench by Omaha Ryan graduate George Mills. Now, most of the book is an account of his life as a substitute on the great Nebraska teams of the early 70s. But Chapter 2 and Chapter 3 spend time with him at Omaha Ryan and talk about their rivalry with Prep. And Chapter 3 is about the Shrine Bowl competing against Tom Kropp and Tony Davis. Very interesting book by a very interesting man. A View from the Bench by George Mills. As Class A football entered its final weeks in 1957, it looked like a simple story. Omaha South was unbeaten and only needed a win over rival Omaha North to secure the intercity league title and the consensus state titles from all the newsmen. They sat at 7-0 and number one in the World Herald, Lincoln Journal, and Associated Press ratings. 
Behind them, Omaha Central had lost only to South, while traditional powers Creighton Prep and Omaha North each had two league losses, and North had an additional loss to not as tough as usual Lincoln High. The Lincoln City race itself was largely forgotten, but would be decided when the 3-5 and five High Links played the 3-4 and four Northeast Rockets at Westland's McGee Stadium to end the year. Even that game wouldn't help the case of either team, as it ended in a 6-6 tie. Technically, I think you would have to call the Rockets the city champs on the basis of their 19-6 win over Southeast the week before. High and Southeast would finally meet on the football field a year later in 1958, establishing a full city round robin for the first time. The Big Ten conference title would be decided between one-loss teams, Scotts Bluff and Grand Island. Those two and inner-city teams, Omaha Central and Creighton Prep, made up the rest of the top five rating spots behind South, except for the Associated Press rankings. The state's smaller newspapers, sports editors, uh, who voted there had Lexington in the number two spot. Still, the Minutemen seemed to be locked out of the title with only a final game against the Big Ten's one-win North Platte Bulldogs remaining. Though remember, the platter win, that platter win was over Scott's Bluff. On November 3rd, the Russians sent up a second Sputnik, this time with a passenger, a dog named Laika. Five days later, with two Soviet spacecraft over, or, orbiting overhead, South looked to make their claim as state champions with a Friday afternoon game at Benson Field against North. It was cold and windy as the Packers in all red and the Vikings in gold kicked off, and the weather played a significant role in the game. Twice, South gambled and lost on fourth-down conversions attempts instead of punting into the wind. Both mistakes turned into Dick Ferguson touchdown runs for North. Later, North played the opposite wind strategy and quick kicked on third down with the wind. The ball came to rest at the Packer two-yard line, and South kept finding itself in a deep field position hole. A late quarterback sneak for a touchdown by Bill Holostali was the clincher as North pulled off the 20-7 upset and ended South's dream season. As the Vikings celebrated on the field, the Central team came running out of the pack stands to join them. The upset meant that South and Central would share the intercity league title. South's conference crown was its first since 1946, but the Eagle drought had been even longer. Central hadn't been conference football champions since 1938. Lexington made their final case with a 33-6 win over North Platte. The Bulldogs showed a little life early as Jack Renfro took a screen pass 68 yards for a TD and an early lead. It was the first time the Lexington goal line had been crossed during the entire season, but the North Platte momentum didn't last. Uh, Phelps, Dyer, and Jim Shepard all had TD runs, and Jerry Simmons popped a 57-yard punt return as the Minutemen roared to their undefeated finish. Omaha Westside didn't help the Lex case in the regular season finale. The Warriors, the most impressive Class A win on the Lexington schedule, were riding a five-game win streak when they traveled to Norfolk to finish the season. They hadn't lost since that 33 to nothing drubbing by the Minutemen. Norfolk running backs uh, Bill Lamoureux and Bill Ferguson ripped Westside defense for big runs, though, and the Panthers routed them 25 to zip. That weakened the persuasion power of the Minutemen's best Class A win. On the other hand, the Big Ten playoff result may have helped Lex's case, uh, as the Western champion Scott's Bluff, who, remember, had been upset by Lex's last victim, North Platte, dominated Grand Island 28-6. All-state runner John Williamson scored two of the Bearcat touchdowns, and quarterback Jerry Wilkes accounted for two, two through the air.
That threw the question to Omaha's Greg McBride, Lincoln Raider Al Beebe, and the voters of the Associated Press, with no shortage of championship candidates. Let's run them down. We've got Lexington, a perfect 8-0, Southwestern Conference champs, best wins over Class B co-state champ Holdridge, and 5-3 and Westside, plus that win over North Platte, which was their trump card in comparisons with Scott's Bluff. For the entire season, Lex gave up only seven points. Then there's Omaha South. Intercity League co-champs finished 7-1 after holding the number one spot for most of the year. The Packers' best wins were over Central and Prep in the first two weeks of the season. South nearly stumbled against Lincoln High, trailing 20-7 at the half in Omaha before rallying, and then they finished with that thud against North. Next, there's Omaha Central, led by All-State center Ken Brink, all five foot seven and 144 pounds of him. The other inner city league champ was also seven and one, and the Eagles won six straight to finish the year, including wins over North and Prep. That one loss, though, was to South, of course. Then there's a wild card, the Falls City Tigers, whose loss was to Atchison, Kansas, but the Redmen finished seven and one and ranked number seven in the Kansas Big School Division. But Falls City was undefeated in the state of Nebraska. Their best wins were over Class A Beatrice, Fairbury, and Nebraska City. That had been the Pioneers' only 1957 loss. And over McBride's Class B state champion, Crete. Their schedule was only slightly better than Lexington's, though, if that. Then there's Scott's Bluff. The Big Ten champions went 7-1-1 with their tie to Laramie, Wyoming, the two-time defending Wyoming state champs at 55-56. and But the loss was a glaring one, that loss to North Platte. Their best win, other than the conference title playoff defeat of the Islanders, was over Lincoln High, a win that doesn't carry as much weight as a win over the Lynx usually did. And then there is one more Class A undefeated team, a team none of the Raiders had given consideration all year, a fact that wasn't going to change now. After our last two episodes, you know who that is, Boys Town. The Cowboys are 7-0-1, with wins on the road in Kansas City, Minneapolis, Michigan, twice, and Iowa. Also, home wins over Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and Council Bluffs' Thomas Jefferson, a victory Uh, of a much larger margin than the margins that either Omaha South or Omaha Central achieved over the Yellow Jackets, by the way. Their only blemish was a 19-19 tie at Pittsburgh North Catholic, a team that only lost one game in big school Pennsylvania circles. We will give plenty of time to considering quarterback Wilburn Hollis and his great Cowboy team when we return to our Boys Town series later this season. But for now, we'll ignore them, because that's what McBride and all the other Raiders did. Why? Because the West Dodgers played exactly zero games against Nebraska foes. When their Creighton Prep series ended in 1955, the boys went completely dark on the Nebraska Prep football scene. That left our Raiders with South, Central, Falls City, Scotts Bluff, or Lexington. Neither of the newspapers had allowed the Minutemen or the Tigers into the top five all year because of their schedule, so that meant the AP was going to be important for Lex. All three Raiders had seen their number one, Omaha South, lose by two touchdowns in a, in, uh, to a three-loss Omaha North squad in that season finale. McBride decided the best way to deal with Coach Cletus Fitcher's squad's fall from grace was to just ignore it. He named Omaha South his state champions, with Omaha Central second. 
He kept the same top five he'd had for most of the second half of the season, with Scotts Bluff Prep and Grand Island following in that order. He had Falls City number nine and Lexington number ten behind North, Benson, and three five and one Lincoln High. For McBride, South's head-to-head win over Central in late September was the key. Packer quarterback John Feyman had led a fourth-quarter rally with his arm and finished it with a TD streak. Al Beebe in the Lincoln papers went another way. He let South drop with the loss and promoted the team that Feyman had bested, Omaha Central. The Eagles' six-game win streak to end the season was the key for him in separating the one-loss teams. He listed Scott's bluff second followed by South and Prep. He at least allowed Lexington into the top five, slipping them in front of GI. He also included the Lynx, but at least ranked Falls City above them uh, at spot number eight. It was the Associated Press poll of editors from all over the state that finally gave Lexington their state championship recognition. Looking back at the talent of Tinglehoff, Dyer, and Kiffin, and knowing the level of football they will play in their careers, Lexington seems like a no-brainer to us now. But in 1957, it was very tough to crack the inner-city, Lincoln, Big Ten scheduling circle in a way that would convince the Raiders you belonged at the top. McBride listed Lexington's 13-0 win over Kozad as the low point on their schedule. That's an opponent that might have won the Class B title, if not for a broken arm on the wrong player at the wrong time. In respect, I think the Minutemen are easily my pick for 1957 champs, and the Nebraska Hall of Fame backed me up by choosing them as their golden anniversary team in 2007. It's not surprising that in early November of 57, before all the games had been played and the ratings decided, one of the first voices that I've ever seen speak up in favor of a Nebraska high school football playoff system was Lex coach Merle Appleby. Of course, Coach Appleby had a selfish reason to wish one was in place in 1957, but he also had a background that made it his an interesting perspective. He and his brother, Hastings legendary Coach Earl Appleby, had grown up in Oklahoma, which was not only one of the few states that had already organized a football playoff system in the 1950s, but was the hotbed of college football success at the time as Bud Wilkinson's Sooners were dominating the country during the decade. Nebraska head football coach Bill Jennings, also an Omaha native, chimed in on the discussion a few days later, also favoring a playoff. By the way, both Merle Appleby and Coach Jennings also spoke in favor of another Oklahoma high school football innovation, the August All-Star Game. That suggestion would be followed in the Cornhusker State just a couple years later with the development of the Shrine Bowl, while we'd have to wait 17 more seasons to see a playoff bracket in Nebraska. Obviously, 1957 would have been a great year to throw together a four-team bracket, and it would have solved a lot of ratings headaches. You could either match, rematch Central and South or pick one of them to test Falls City while letting Lexington and Big Ten champ Scott's Bluff play off in the West. Except, it would have been nice to work in Boys Town. Wow, it doesn't take a historian long to see why it took a while for the schools to come to an agreement on a playoff format. And anyway, for the next couple decades, America would need its best mathematical minds working on the space race, not figuring playoff points. My script here says, long pause for laughter. But that's it until next week when we bring you another episode of Suiting Up Varsity. Until next time, follow us on Twitter where our handle is 
suit up at suit up varsity. See us on Facebook at facebook.com slash suiting up varsity. Check out our website at suitingupvarsity.org where we'll post our show notes, including a picture of Lexington in those olive green uniforms. When you get there, you can ask us questions about Nebraska high school sports history, leave suggestions for future episodes, tell us why you think Lexington was wearing those green uniforms in 57, or answer this episode's trivia question. When did the Minutemen next find themselves on top of the final Nebraska football ratings? We hope to hear from you soon. Also, if you like this podcast, please take time to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever else you find your podcasts. It really does help point their search engine our way when other people are looking for podcasts to listen to. This has been Suiting Up Varsity, Volume 2, Episode 2, written and produced by me, Greg Mays, technical and research assistance by my brothers, Tate Mays and Trent Mays, helpful audio advice and encouragement from Chris Shukai, and, as always, dedicated to Jerry Mathers, the godfather of Nebraska high school sports history and the inspiration for this podcast. Suiting Up Varsity is the anchor show of the Nebraska Varsity Network. Copyright 2017.